Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Hello and welcome back to Riverside Online. Welcome back to our greater series where we're exploring the book of Hebrews in our Bibles together. Last time we talked about Jesus being the great high priest, how he removed the need for a human mediator between man and God. And we saw that we can all come into God's presence confidently because of what Jesus did. And today we'll be continuing exploring this theme through chapters 8 and 9 of this letter. Just to reiterate, we're not going through these sections line by line. We simply haven't got the time to do that. But rather, we're exploring the overarching themes that are present within the sections of the letter. Chapter 8 focuses on the new covenant. And chapter 9 focuses on how Jesus establishes that new covenant. And the word covenant in this case means simply a, the terms by which two parties relate. It's kind of an agreement. So in, the, in our case, in Hebrews, we're talking about the covenant between God and people. So let's begin by exploring some of the themes present in these next sections. One of the key things I want to talk about today is this idea that the uh, author says that the tabernacle and the temple were a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And he says that in Hebrews 8 verse 5. The tabernacle was the temporary temple given to the Israelites as they wandered in the desert and it was a way of constructing a place for God to dwell. It was a tent-like structure they could put up and take down as they moved on from place to place. Later, David's son Solomon constructed a more permanent temple, a large temple, a stone temple that was constructed. Uh, this was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians, uh, which was a shame because it was a magnificent structure. And the second temple was later built by the Jews as they returned from exile in around 538 BC. They began to work on this temple And this temple is commonly called Herod's Temple because in about 20 BC, Herod did an extensive rebuilding project on that particular temple. And that's the temple that Jesus would have walked around and is present in the Gospels. All these temples followed a a similar pattern. You you move from outer courts to inner, more holy places until you move to the most inner holy place, the Holy of Holies. And we've talked previously, haven't we, about this is a place where the great high priest went just once a year to make atonement for the people. And you can read all about that in chapter 9 of Hebrews if you want to explore that further. In this section today, we're talking and going to look at this extraordinary statement that the author makes um, about, about the tabernacle and about Jesus and the tabernacle. He says this in Hebrews 9, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went to the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. I recently visited my mum and my sister and brother-in-law on the Isle of Wight. We had a lovely time celebrating my mum's 80th birthday. And while I was there, I got to play with my nephew's uh, high-end virtual reality setup. I didn't even know he had this, but um, he showed me and asked if I could have a go on this. And so I thought I'd... um, I'll show you a quick video of me wearing the gear and actually entering this virtual world. Now, 
as you watch that, all you see is me looking very silly, making strange movements uh, in, a, in a small room, in a bedroom. But for me, the experience was completely different. When I put that headset on, I entered this massive immersive world. The bedroom disappeared and I was in this huge high up sort of mountain loft where I looked out through windows, the left hand side, and saw this extensive mountain range off into the distance. I could look up and see the stars in the sky. I was in this huge space, in this huge immersive space. And I was dodging these people coming towards me and picking up objects and trying to, and trying to throw them. And I was interacting with this, this virtual world. It was invisible to you and to the people watching on. It was extraordinary. I first put those VR goggles on. I was just transported into a completely different space, a different, much more expansive environment. But when I lifted those VR goggles, I was back in the small bedroom. And it was like existing in two very different realities. And I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to describe something like that in this section. He talks about Jesus entering uh, a temple, a tabernacle, that is not part of this creation. We can't see that temple and tabernacle that the author of Hebrews is referencing. It was of a different realm. The earthly tabernacle is just a series of tents and poles that could be put up and taken down to create a, a temporary temple. But it represented something much greater. It represented the dwelling place of God. In fact, it was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. That's what the author of Hebrews says. It was a copy of something in the heavenly realm. It was a shadow, just kind of a, a small facsimile of what was present in the heavenly realm. And that heavenly tabernacle was greater and is more perfect and is not made by human hands. So this heavenly tabernacle that's being described is so much more than the earthly tabernacle. And unlike my VR experience, it's also much more substantial. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says this, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And this section is full of greater language. Jesus' ministry is superior the covenant he mediates is superior. The promises on which the covenant's based are better. And all the words here talk about surpassing or stronger or better or superior. And Jesus comes to create this new covenant between God and people, a new way of relating based upon superior terms. But why was this new covenant needed? Well, this is outlined in chapter 8. It says this, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. There was a problem. And that problem is described as a fault. The writer describes it as a fault. And the fault was with the people of God. The people of Israel didn't remain faithful to the covenant that God had established and put in place. The Israelite people were fickle and flaky, as we all are. And they kept breaking the covenant terms of the relationship. We talked last time about the external boundary markers, didn't we, that defined the Torah and the atonement covenant, the way that the people live within these certain boundaries, rituals, regulations, and traditions. And this defined their covenantal relationship with God. But the problem was they couldn't seem to stay within those boundary markers. They couldn't seem to uphold the things that God had put in place. And they would ebb and flow in their commitment to God. And this is the story of the Old Testament, that the people of God ebbing and flowing in their relationship with him. So God announces to the prophet Jeremiah, he will establish a new covenant. 
a new way of relating. God will move the covenant relationship from being based on external boundary markers to being based on an internal heart change. And Jeremiah prophetically announces this some 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews quotes it here. He quotes from Jeremiah 31 saying, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my, my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. These are the better promises of the new covenant, moving from outside to inside, from far to near, from one tribe to all people coming to know God. The writer describes the limitations of the old covenant when he says the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshippers. The external nature of the old, old covenant wouldn't, couldn't penetrate deeply enough into the human soul, into the human mind to cleanse it. People were cleansed externally, but they still felt contaminated on the inside. Their conscience was still contaminated. Jesus dealt with these limitations. He says in Hebrews 9, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the external spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so we may serve the living God. Jesus works from the inside out, not the outside in. When we invite him into our lives, he begins an internal work of transformation for all of us. To use Jeremiah's language, he begins to write on our hearts. He writes on our hearts the things that are on God's heart. And we find our appetites and our actions changing because of this. Because of this internal writing by the Holy Spirit, our actions and attitudes change. Our conscience is cleansed. We no longer live under guilt and shame. And our orientation is towards life, towards God and towards other people. Not towards actions that lead to selfish dead ends. Jesus works from the inside out. And because of this, we can all be personally and intimately connected to God through Jesus. And these are the greater promises that, that Jesus says this new covenant is made upon, that we're invited into. Now we can't go through these sections in Hebrews without talking about blood. Now I'm sorry if you don't like thinking about blood or talking about blood, but blood is everywhere in this section of the Hebrews letter. It's mentioned 21 times in the whole book of Hebrews and it's mentioned a total of 12 times just in chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews makes this statement. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. The process of atonement outlined in the Torah was linked to animal sacrifice and the shedding of blood. The Holy of Holies was accessed through the blood of goats and calves. We're told the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So there's this, this sprinkling of blood that, that makes clean the people of God. And he also goes on to say, it's even necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the sacrifices. So everything was, was scattered and spattered with blood. It was a shedding of blood that made atonement for the people and for the, even for the items that were used in that atonement process. So the sins of the people of Israel 
and the whole ceremonial system were cleansed by the shedding of animal blood. The astute amongst you would have realised by now that Jesus isn't an animal. He's not a goat, he's not a calf, he was a person. So why is his blood linked to atonement? Well, when Jesus took the bread and the wine that night as he had that last meal with his disciples, he made this extraordinary statement. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And this statement would have blown the mind, I think, of his disciples who heard it. Because for them, the thought of a human sacrificing for atonement was, was such an alien concept. It was a, it, it probably even an offensive concept. Israel didn't do human sacrifice. They'd lived amongst other pagan nations who'd done that, but Israel was different. They didn't do human sacrifice. When Jesus announced it's going to be my blood that's going to atone, it's going to be my blood that's going to build a new covenant, they would have been blown away by that statement. Jesus announced this new covenant would be founded on the shedding of his blood, not on the shedding of animal blood. And this shedding of blood would come in the most humiliating and shameful way, the Roman cross. Crucifixion was designed to inflict two things, pain and shame. And when we see impressions of crucifixion now, we often think, we always see images of people lifted high up on crosses, wearing a bit of clothing for modesty. But in reality, when you were crucified, you were stripped naked. And you were basically at eye level. So people could walk past and see you in your excruciating pain and in your deep humiliation as you hung there naked. They could look straight into your eyes. And Christianity is unique because it starts with this extraordinary event of the death of its centrepiece, the death of Jesus Christ, in this most humiliating and shameful way. When we read the Apostle Paul saying in his letter to the Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We transpose our modern embarrassment onto that. We think, yeah, well, you know, Paul got over the fact talking about Jesus with his friends, you know, because occasionally I get a bit embarrassed about talking about Jesus with my friends. But Paul wasn't saying that. Paul wasn't saying... I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I'm, I'm embarrassed about sharing the gospel with friends. He was saying, I've managed to reconcile at the centre of my faith is this, this act of deepest shame and humiliation. For a Jew, for their king, for their Messiah to be crucified and humiliated in this way, it would have been really problematic. But Paul recognised that when Jesus did that, there was something utterly unique and utterly powerful. He goes on to say this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The humiliation of the cross is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile alike. It is significant that Jesus died in this way, that he died on a cross. His crucifixion does something extraordinary. It does something extraordinary. It serves as a model for those who follow him. And Paul outlines this in another letter to the Philippian church. He says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. Now, Paul isn't giving us a lesson in theology here. He's showing us how we should live. Because Jesus humbled himself in that way, we too should humble ourselves. He tells us at the start of this chapter in Philippians 2, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, value others above yourself. And he encourages us to have the same mindset as Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, then we as followers should echo some of that in our own lives. Jesus suffered this shocking humiliation for us. And so we should be a people of utter humility. And there's a deep mystical connection, I think, between what Christ suffered on the cross and his followers. Paul says later on in this letter to the Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to know Jesus. He wants to know him better. And so he wants to enter into the suffering of the cross. Because you see, the Christian life isn't all about victory and mountaintop experiences. Some of the times we know Christ best and most intimately is in the midst of our suffering. We sometimes never more connected to him than when we connect with his suffering on the cross. And this is what's called the cruciform life, when we enter into that, that cross experience with Jesus, that deep place of intimacy. Jesus was humiliated for us on the cross, and so we too are called into that place of humility. And there's a mystery going on here with the cross and with Jesus and with us. The whole concept of atonement through the shedding of blood is difficult to understand. And I really appreciate that. And many struggle with why would God want to sacrifice his son to bring about forgiveness? Why is that necessary? What we've learned over these past chapters, I think, is that this isn't something done to Jesus. In fact, we learn from Hebrews that Jesus is both the sacrificer, the great high priest, and the sacrifice. He's both. He's both. He's the great high priest who enters into that most holy place and surrenders his own blood in the most powerful and permanent form of atonement for us. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. God didn't demand anything that he didn't provide on our behalf. And atonement through blood is a mystery, I think, that we'll never fully understand here upon the earth. But let's not think that God is somehow distant and demanding. Jesus came as fully man to reconcile us fully back to God. And he did that himself. He entered that most holy place, that heavenly tabernacle, as the great high priest and gave his own blood for you and I. And he cleansed us inside and out once and for all. He did what the blood of animals could never do. Jesus fulfilled all the obligations of that first covenant and established a superior one with greater promises of new life for everyone who chooses to accept that invitation and respond to him. I want to close today with a quote from Stephen Bernhope's book, Atonement and the New Perspective, which really brings this all together. Atonement then originates and has always originated in a covenant-making event in the heart of God. His relational restorative work via an ongoing covenantal relationship is the story of the scriptures from beginning to end. 
The cross was the ultimate manifestation to the world of a covenantal love that began at its foundation. The cross was the consequence of a limitless divine love for God's creation seen through to its inevitable conclusion, the ultimate covenant involving the ultimate covenant sacrifice foreseen from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you invite us into these greater promises, that you as the great high priest enter the most holy place on our behalf and you shed your blood once and for all to bring about eternal redemption. And Lord, we thank you that we can receive your promises today. We can respond to your promises. We can enter your presence confidently because of all you've done. And Lord, we thank you that you cleanse us. You cleanse us from the inside out. You make us new. You make us whole. You restore us, God. And Lord, we thank you that we can live in your promises. We can live in the power of the cross. So God, I just pray that as we, as, we, as we reflect on these words today, God, that you would do a deep work within us, a deep sense of communion with you. And God, help us to walk in your, in your humility. Lord, you came modelled to us how to live. You showed us how to treat each other. God, help us to walk in that model, walk in that leading. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside. <laughs>